This is a January 2023 recording. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Pods for Docs. My name is Sin Yu Tai, your friendly, inquisitive neurology registrar, and today we will round out our mini series on skid malignancies by discussing melanoma. One might say that this is the most serious entry of this mini series, at least from a mortality perspective. Dr. Lees, a consultant dermatologist in the UK, is back with us today. Welcome, Dr. Lees. Hello, Zin. So let's kick off by giving us a broad feeling of why malignant melanoma is such an important topic. Melanoma represents a malignant tumor that arises from a melanocyte. These are the cells in the basal layer of the epidermis that produce melanin. And due to its metastatic potential, meaning that it can spread in the body, melanoma can lead to up to 90% of all skin cancer deaths. I think that's really key, isn't it? It's got such a high relation to mortality related to skin cancers that we really must know about it. So tell us a bit more about melanomas then. Melanoma predominantly affects the skin, and that's called cutaneous melanoma. And melanoma is the most serious form of skin cancer. But one can also find it in the mucosal surfaces and rarely in other organs like the eyes. There are other differentiations. But I think for the purposes of this exam, it's important to know about cutaneous melanomas. That's right. It's a really interesting fact that melanomas can present almost anywhere. And that's something that I rarely come across during my neurology days. However, I think you're right. Let's stick to the cutaneous form as there's plenty to discuss. So how common is melanoma as a skin cancer and who is it most likely to affect? Most cases arise in people younger than 50 years of age. This is an interesting fact, as this is the time of your life that you will most likely be the most active. The risk increases with age, and it is less likely to form in pre-puberty in children. Melanoma is one of the most common forms of cancer in young adults, and therefore this is a significant public health problem, especially with respect to years of life lost. The incident rate of melanoma have increased over the past four decades, meaning that the number of melanomas diagnosed went up. It is also known that the technology and the ways of diagnosing melanomas increased and improved over the past four decades. It's also interesting to see that the mortality rates began to stabilize in the early 1990s, as we can find them earlier now. That's a good point to know. And I suppose it's common to a few other conditions where we're detecting it earlier. So the incidence is going up, but part of detecting it earlier is also that we get to treat it earlier. So the mortality rates get a little bit better than what they were before. Now, you've alluded to this a little bit, but could you walk us through what the risk factors are for developing malignant melanoma? The biggest risk factor still is UV exposure. And this can be in sun exposure, especially in childhood, for something like a lentigo maligna melanoma, which I'll explain in a bit. The increased total number of lifetime hours of sun exposure plays a role. Important to note is that artificial UV sources, such as sunbeds, also increase the risk of melanoma. And it's very sad to note that we see quite a number of young female patients coming into our clinics in dermatology with melanoma diagnosis and a very strong history of UV tanning beds that was used. This whole sunbed issue is such a recurring theme in the last few episodes, isn't it? So a really important issue for our listeners to know about. 
because we've heard it with melanoma and also with the basal cell, as well as the squamous cell carcinomas. So I think the take-home message is sunbeds are pretty bad, aren't they? Absolutely. Genetics also play a role, and it's interesting that some people do develop melanomas and some don't, even though they have the same level of sun exposure and have similar type of skin. That being said, there is a slightly increased risk, and this means about one to three times the risk of the general population in people with fair skin that burn easily, also with red or blonde hair, blue eyes, a high density of freckles, and of course, a family history of melanoma. If you have a moderate risk, this means eight to 10 times the risk of the general population. One of the big factors contributing is a large number of nevi, which mean a large number of normal moles. And if you have moles of more than 50, that would be five zero, you will be classified as a higher risk patient for developing a melanoma. It's interesting to note that melanomas arise in about 50% of moles, but then 50% of melanomas arise from normal skin. But this can be more likely in an area with a lot of moles, as this shows us that there was sun exposure to this area, especially in childhood. You also have a higher risk if you had a previous melanoma. And then, of course, our organ transplant recipients being on immunosuppressive therapy for lifelong does have a higher risk of developing most skin cancers, but then also melanoma. A very high risk, and that would mean more than 10 times the risk of the normal population, would be in patients who were born with giant melanocytic nevi. This is also called a congenital giant melanocytic nevi. And our listeners can maybe look this up to familiarize themselves with this giant nevus that one can see in a newborn then also a very high risk to those with the so-called high penetrance gene. And we're not going to go into detail, but just to show that genetics does play a very big role along with the other risk factors. Hey, thanks for that. I really like the way you structured that into the categories of things which slightly increase the risk moderately and increase the risk in a high manner. It's important to highlight that these patients with the giant congenital melanocytic nevi, as well as these organ transplant recipients on immunosuppression, have fairly high risk. And what is fascinating from a personal point is even though this whole concept of fair skin, blonde hair, blue eyes only slightly increases your risk, it's actually something that I see quite a lot in exam questions to sort of link the question to melanoma. So perhaps something for our listeners to think about as they study this topic. Okay, so why don't we talk a little bit about the underlying pathophysiology of malignant melanoma? As we already discussed, melanoma is a tumor produced by the malignant transformation of melanocytes. There are different types of melanoma to be found, and then of course with different pathophysiology of them forming. The first would be a lentigo malignum, which is usually a cancer of the head and neck. This would be a more flat lesion, and it usually starts with a light brown patch, and it can take from 5 to 20 years to start developing different color and thicker areas, and occasionally affecting the trunk and limbs, but mostly on the face in sun-exposed individuals later in life. We also get superficial or thin forms of melanoma, which initially spread within the epidermis, and later on can have a vertical growth. Superficial spreading melanoma is the most common type of invasive melanoma, and about 50% of all melanomas in the UK 
would be superficial spreading. I think it's worth note to our listeners that the risk associated with melanoma lies in the vertical growth. Radial growth, in other words, the size that we can see on the skin is not the biggest risk factor. When the lesion begin to go thicker on the surface and deeper down in the dermis, that would be vertical growth and the prognosis is really worse. Yes, so vertical growth is much more significant than the horizontal growth. And I think we're going to touch a bit more about that when we look at the treatment. Why don't we talk a little bit more about the clinical presentation of malignant melanoma on the skin? What do you look out for? It is very important to do a total body skin examination of your patient. One always needs to ask permission before you do that, and a chaperone is advisable, but one has to look at the whole skin. This is important in the initial evaluation and also during all subsequent follow-up visits. The skin examination will involve assessing the number of moles or nevi present and then distinguishing between typical and atypical moles. How will you distinguish between a typical and an atypical mole? There are different models of categorizing this, but the most used and most reliable, according to most literature sources, stay the A, B, C, D model of evaluating a mole. A stands for asymmetry. That means that the mole doesn't look the same on the one side as on the other side. So if you fold it in half, it won't fit together. B would stand for border irregularity. And this simply means that the edges of the mole is not symmetric and that it have a jagged appearance and it just doesn't look right. C stands for color. And that tends to be a very dark black or blue color that arise within your brown variant of the mole. A rule of thumb would be if there are more than two colors brown, it spells trouble. D is for diameter, and this is for anything bigger than six millimeters. Important to our listeners is to note that in the exam, the question often poses itself as a lesion being seven millimeters big, which would be the right answer if we look on the NHS website and also the NICE guidelines. So the lesion must be bigger than six millimeter, and they sometimes catch you out by giving you the option of six millimeter and seven millimeter, and then you have to choose the seven millimeter one. Great. I think that's really useful to have this ABCD framework in our minds. So asymmetry, border irregularity, color, and diameter greater than six millimeters. And just for our listeners to remember, this is not the ABCD2 score of TIA risk. It's the ABCD score of melanoma. Very good point then. Important to remember that a patient that was diagnosed with melanoma will need examination of all lymph node groups on all follow-up visits. Yeah, that's really important because it's such a metastatic condition. So how would you investigate someone with suspected malignant melanoma? I think in primary care, it's very important to try and familiarize yourself with dermoscopy as far as possible, as this can really improve the diagnostic accuracy of lesions, and it may also help direct optimal and adequate tissue sampling. So having a look at the moles with a dermatoscope is of value. Also very, very important, and I think this is something that can easily be done, will be photographs of the lesion pre-biopsy. It's very important to have a baseline photograph at primary care, as when the patient presents in secondary care and it's a week or two later, it's very useful to compare the lesion against the photograph that was taken before. 
a skin biopsy remain the first step to establish the definite diagnosis of cutaneous melanoma, but this will mostly be done in secondary care. Yes, perfect. From what I understand, melanomas are really managed in secondary care. And so I think you would say that all suspected cases should be referred on the urgent two-week wait. Absolutely. And there is definite extra clinics and capacity available in secondary care to accommodate any pigment lesion of worry. That's good to know. And why don't you walk us through what are the different treatment options should you see a patient with confirmed malignant melanoma in your clinic? Surgery is still the definitive treatment for early stage melanoma. And our listeners can read up on the guidelines currently available for the margins. And this is in correlation with the vertical growth. In short, the thicker the lesion, the wider the margins. But there is a very comprehensive table available on most websites of the NHS and NICE guidelines. This, of course, will be done by experienced plastic surgeons or dermatology specialist surgeons. This will then correlate with the breast thickness, the thickness of the lesion, and that would mean vertical growth, which is a bad prognostic factor. We've got a few advances in the melanoma world, and apart from surgery, there can also be adjuvant therapy in patients with advanced melanoma. There are a few drugs available, this new ones discovered which work as checkpoint inhibitors in the pathway of melanoma, which I think is beyond the scope of this examination, although very interesting. And then also the very exciting world of immunomodulators, which play a role in most cancers, also in melanoma. So if you have a patient with an advanced level of melanoma with spread to other parts of the body, these systemic treatments can be used as adjuvant treatment to the surgery There are also certain guidelines, and this is also very defined and very comprehensive, available on most websites of the NHS and NICE guidelines, about CT scans for certain levels of staging, where a patient will have a six-monthly CT scan for a set amount of time. This is mostly for secondary care, and I think for the purpose of the exam, not something our listeners should try and memorize. Yes, I agree that these adjuvant therapies, the immunotherapies, checkpoint inhibitors are really exciting, although it is safe to say that it's not going to come out in the exam, at least we don't expect it to. But if you're a budding dermatologist, you suddenly must go and look these up. However, what everyone should know is the importance of the skin biopsy, as well as the fact that surgery is your mainstay of treatment. And important for prognosis is the vertical thickness, the Breslow thickness of a melanoma, and that will guide both the management as well as the excision boundaries. Fantastic. Any final words on malignant melanomas, Dr. Lees? I do think in primary care, patients who were seen with melanomas followed up for the five-year period will go back to primary care and will see our physicians again. It's worth having the conversation on every occasion about sun protection, sun safety, and rather avoiding the sun between nine and four in the day, as we do know that we have a global warming phenomena also playing a role, and it's very important for our patients to try and stay safe. Amazing. I like that. So we're going to end this episode with a public health message in addition to all the amazing information about malignant melanoma that you've given us. So thanks very much for this informative and interesting episode. I certainly learned a lot. And also to our listeners out there, for our next mini-series, we're thinking of tackling HIV from a general medicine perspective, as well as HIV-associated skin lesions. 
So do reach out to the Pabble team if you think this would be of interest to you. And also please do check out the Pabble resources on the website. Thanks again, Dr. Lees. And till next time, everybody stay safe.